This is An Economy of One, your beacon guiding you through the turbulent waters of the political economy, its life, liberty, and the pursuit of self-reliance. An Economy of One with Gary Rathbun. Greetings and welcome again to An Economy of One. I am your host, Gary Rathbun. Our website, economyofone.com. And economyofone.com, as is our Facebook Economy of One on Facebook. Well, we've had about a week now since the uh, elections over in Great Britain. And uh, I wanted to spend a little time on the uh, fallout from the results of that election. Joining me now is my uh, chief investment officer over at Private Wealth Consultant, Shams Afsal. Shams, welcome back. Thank you. Last week, we had a big event. And I wanted to talk to you a little bit about it, given your expertise on international affairs like this. But uh, the uh, snap election in Great Britain mm-hmm. uh, happened a couple of days ago. Let, let's start with the basics, first of all. What, what is a snap election and why did Theresa May uh, want it to happen? Well, um, she was preparing for the Brexit negotiations that are about to start next week. And having been elected... Uh, from a parliamentary procedure and really not got voted in because um, Cameron resigned, okay. as you remember. Um, she wanted to bolster her standing, and there's no other way uh, to do that ahead of, I, I want to say three years ahead of time, uh, is to do a snap election. It happens. It's not that that frequent, uh, but parties wanting to consolidate their powers generally tend to do that. And she may have read those same posts that we all did, that 20 points ahead of all, the next uh, strongest party of the four main ones. Uh, I think there are five parties that basically uh, make up the majority of the 300 some seats across UK, including Ireland. Um, but yes, it was a shocker for sure. So she didn't obviously, obviously she didn't get the results she wanted. No, she out of did that. not. So what happened there? Well, um, it is. I mean, the headlines have been to the point which is um, she won, but she lost in the process. Labor lost, but they won in the process. Okay. <laughs> so labor gained seats? Yes. So labor gained about 32 seats. Uh, she lost about 13. At 20 point differential in polling, they expected her to gain like 50 to 70 seats. Okay. All right. So there was a big turnaround. Um, and and there were other parties down the uh, down the ballot that um, you'd remember Nigel Farage, the guy who was the the biggest proponent of Brexit, uh, who has been seen in Trump Tower right after election and so on. Um, his party did not fare well at all. I mean, it was a smack in the face. Now, now, uh, now why is that? I mean, it, you know, I I never believe uh, some of the headlines because it seems like the speculation is just too quick. There's not enough time to analyze. Was it the the terrorist attack uh, just before the election? Uh, I also read that the the young people of of Great Britain wanted to make a statement and they came out in larger numbers. I mean, it's what, the latter. It's, it's definitely the latter, the latter because, um, I mean, Londoners are, are pr- pretty resilient people just like New York and, you know, some of our metro cities. I think they took it in stride and it was unbelievable how, um, you know, the, the artist from the U.S., Grande, she went back within four or five days and had right. a massive, like a bigger concert for free for everybody and it was packed house uh, almost in the same area. So, yeah, they, I don't think it had that much of an effect other than the one 
um, angle that Jeremy Corbyn used against her, which is to say, uh, you want to prevent some of these stuff. You were um, the interior uh, secretary when you were cutting funding mm-hmm. for this kind of stuff. You know? Fewer policemen, yes. that kind of stuff. Yeah. Um, but be that as it may, the, the younger people who were one of the, uh, the early and instant uh, buyer's remorse uh, sort of sounders right after Brexit's uh, results came out, they basically showed up in force. Um, now, what what does this mean for uh, Theresa May's uh, administration? I, I guess I'll use that word. Uh, once again, I've read the headlines, which mm-hmm. I don't necessarily uh, yeah. believe, but uh, she still holds more seats in parliament than any other party. Yes. Um, she's lost majority. She's and, lost majority. And so in the parliamentary system, you have to have either a majority or a coalition government. So you now you need to go find people that have common ground with you amongst the other parties um, in uh, Downing Street that will uh, allow you to govern. And so the couple of risks that the markets are anticipating, one is that she's going to have to strike an alliance with a party nobody wants to touch. Um, I think much of Europe and much of England, uh, UK, I should say, has moved on and they don't fight the battles of anti-gay marriage and that sort of a thing. Right. The, the DUP party, uh, something unionists, uh, democratic unionists, uh, they have very special feelings about gay people, climate change, all of that stuff, which is, I guess, mainstream in the U.S. US these days. Mm-hmm. Um, nobody wants to strike an alliance, and they're the only people that are willing to work with her, okay? So um, going into next week's negotiations with Brexit, not having the mainstream thought process and the leaders around her, despite the fact that she only needed to strengthen her position given the divorce cost for U.K., uh, is being estimated at somewhere over $50 billion. And some of these have to do with uh, a temporary hit to GDP. Some of these have to be uh, dealt with in terms of liabilities for loans that are outstanding to some of the struggling members like Hungary, Ireland even. Mm-hmm. Uh, those things don't go away. The pension liabilities for UK, for its EU staff, all right, these things will not go away. And just because you decide to break away doesn't mean that you get to, you know, write, um, you know, a creditor's note and move on. Mm-hmm. Uh, so those are the costs that they wanted to have a better grip on, and they wanted a bigger majority. That That's going to be floundering a little bit. But at the end of the day, I don't know if she survives, frankly, because some of the greatest um, right-hand, left-hand people um, have stepped down. Uh, some of them are staying, but it seems to me that it's temporary. And there are other members of the parliament that are saying they're not fans of Corbyn anyway. Mm-hmm. Uh, but if Corbyn were to step down or somebody new, fresh face came on to lead the Labour Party, they think within a year or two, when the real election comes around, Labour actually might become majority again. Not a scene since Tony Blair's time, basically. Right. Um, yeah. So, I mean, that was a, a big political gamble. Yes. One could say in hindsight, I mean, 2020 hindsight, not a great gift, yeah. but that's all we have. Yeah. Um, big political gamble didn't pay off. Mm-hmm. She'd have been better off to not do that. That's right. Okay. And uh, I, I, I read about the, the political um, uh, coalition and, wow, that, that seems awful fragile yeah. to, to base your your next two or three years of, That's of right. policy on, doesn't it? Yes. I mean, th- those yeah. people could change. I mean, they, they yeah. got her now. Yeah. yeah. You know, th- there are people who have 
um, their voices are only so far uh, that serve the purpose of being in opposition. When it's time to govern, they are not able to do it. We see it all across the world. Um, they, to me, they strike me as one of those kinds of parties that have always held a small number of seats for UK. Uh, they make their voices heard, and people really don't take them a whole lot seriously. Uh, so this coalition will be very weak. Um, I think when it comes to UK and its economy, um, much more questions than answers at this point. But we are seeing some of the early effects. Europe wants to pull away, um, bringing it back to you know finance and the markets. London is a major clearing hub for uh, for all of Europe. Right. Okay. Uh, Europe is trying to pull that away from London as we speak. Mm -hmm. uh, so they find UK in a much more uh, you know untenable spot, right. and you know kind of striking when they are inside, basically. Yeah. Now does that uh, you know once again read a lot of stuff? Um, does that put the the process of divorce with the European Union, the, the Brexit, I hate bifurcated words like that, but uh, does that put uh, Brexit in, in a position where it might not happen? I mean, can they reverse that at this point? I mean, is the, the <laughs> dice rolled and, and uh, we're going? Or? Well, um, I don't know. This is, this is a gamble. I, I cannot speculate. I think um, the best outcome would be a soft Brexit, and it's getting softer by the day, frankly. <laughs> <laughs> so, so it might be, yeah, we're going to leave, but we're not really yeah. going to leave. Yeah, and if they, if they keep punning for another two, two and a half years, then the next elections may be actually a re-referendum on Brexit. Okay. Okay, so I think a lot of these things are going to move on by the clear cut, uh, a full divorce. I don't see that happening because um, the people who were supposed to be making all these decisions, they're no longer there. So uh, to, to use a rough analogy, it'd be like a husband and wife getting a divorce, but still living together. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Now, uh, when, the, when the results of this came out, I mean, it, uh, you weren't really surprised. I mean, you follow this pretty closely, uh, but our markets didn't really react negatively to this. How does this yeah. election... Uh, results. How does that affect uh, our relationship with Great Britain, if at all? Uh, how does it affect our markets, if at all? Yeah, I mean, relationship with Great Britain is more from State Department and, you know, how administrations kind of see each other. Uh, Markets-wise, it all happened within the confines of uh, foreign exchange. So the dollar um, behaved a little bit ab abruptly in in and sort of uh, parodied to the British pound. British pound had a freak out, mm -hmm. uh, but it, it recovered quite a bit since then. Um, it's still lower than we're heading into the elections, uh, but I think it's kind of stabilized. That's where some of the uh, bets are being made, that people who believe Brexit's not going to happen are taking a certain position on the British pound, uh, a long position. And the ones that who feel that Brexit is just going to be delayed, but it's going to happen anyway, they're taking a short on the British pound. So it's confines of uh, foreign exchange rather than equities and bonds and that sort of thing. So it really doesn't affect our trade right. and, no. and, and our yeah. agreements right. or treaties or there anything was, like that. There was that. much further positivity and widespread uh, uh, sort of an influence from the French parliamentary uh, outcome that happened uh, over the last 24, 48 hours. Macron, as you know, his party uh, won, but people had doubts that um, will, 
will he be able to actually govern if he actually doesn't materialize into a, a good, uh, strong enough showing in the, the coalition forming? And, and his party that's barely five years old, I mean, it, it just roared. French people decided we have elected him and we're going to give him um, all the help that he needs. Now, once again, was that like Great Britain? Was it a, a big youth vote it, that, that helped that? I did not read about that. His his overall election had a youth comp- component to it. Mm-hmm. Uh, but in terms of the positive influence, uh, French yields on the sovereign debt dropped quite a bit. I mean, it had been rising all the way up till the actual event that happened about a month ago. Uh, now they're steadily dropping because I think all's going to be well now. So that that's a sign of confidence that's right. in, in the economy and in yes. the country and their policies and that kind of that's stuff. That's right, yes. You know, from uh, all your expertise and, and what you study, what do you think of, of uh, Macron? I mean, is he a good guy? Um, <laughs> too early to tell. Uh, um, he's, I mean, he's a centrist. Um, so I... Uh, I mean, the French are yeah, unique people yeah. anyway. Yes, yes. Uh, he's young, and um, you know, centrists mean different things in different countries. Um, yeah, it, it's hard to say. The French people, if it if it works for the French people and the overall goals of that country, you know, uh, then it's all we care about from here is stability. I mean, right. we are not going to be hurt or benefiting from um, a, a tax policy change in France. I don't think, right. uh, but to the extent they provide the stability and not uh, thumb their nose into NATO and all of that other stuff, um, I think that's all we can count on. Well, and, and that's the old saying, you know, the, the market doesn't like uncertainty. That's right. It wants to know, doesn't really care what the information is as long as you know it. That's right. You know? so that's right. We've been speaking with Shams Oswald. He's the chief investment officer over here at Private Wealth Consultants and uh, my go-to guy, especially on international affairs you keep your your uh, finger on the pulse there so uh shams it's been terrific really appreciate your time we'll, we'll keep on on top of this coming up next i'm going to take a look at our own government and uh see how we're doing an economy of one with gary rathbun An Economy of One with Gary Rathbun. In looking at other countries' governments, it always makes me want to look at our own. And we've reached the point, I'm nice, you know, I don't consider myself that old. I'm 60 years old. But I've seen tremendous changes in this country from a federal government uh, and also from a state government, but more from a federal government standpoint in my lifetime. Now, we always talk about wanting smaller government, smaller government, smaller government. And what does that mean? Many people interpret that as uh, having them spend less money. Well, that's not not entirely the whole picture. Our founding fathers put together this nation, put together the Constitution, put together this country to, to protect our freedoms, not to restrict them. And I think we need to fundamentally redefine our relationship with federal government. Too often, uh, we have an issue, we have a, a discomfort, we have a dissatisfaction, and we say, uh, the government ought to do something about that. Somebody ought to do I'm going to call my senator, I'm going to call my representative, I'm going to write a letter, I'm going to do something, but the government ought to do something about it. Well, 
that's our problem. We we've been conditioned, we've been been uh, accustomed to passing the problem on to somebody else so that it's not our fault and it's not our responsibility for what's happening in our life. Now, those who advocate a government solution are actually promoting anti-liberty. Every time the government gets involved in something, your freedom, your liberty becomes a little more restricted, becomes a little bit more less. I remember back uh, in 2015, Senator Rand Paul said he wanted a, a government so small he could barely see it. Well, that's what I want too. Okay, I want the, the, the federal government has a role. I want them to do their role. And it's really protect our borders, um, protect us against physical harm, theft, slavery, that kind of stuff, and enforce contracts, enforce contract law. Making me give money to charity, make me do acts of charity against my will is simply redistribution of wealth. They're taking my money and trying to be noble about taking my money and giving it to somebody else. You know, Congress has added more than a change per day to the tax code since 2001. That's 16 years, 5,000 changes to the tax code. More than one a day, seven days a week, 365 days a year. It takes approximately 6 billion hours to comply with the tax code every year in this country. 6 billion hours. Can you imagine if we took half of those, half of those hours and just geared them toward productivity, geared them toward civility, being nice to your neighbor, helping your community, something, helping yourself, sleeping. I could use a few billion hours of sleep myself, but government just keeps getting bigger and bigger in the name of becoming smaller. Our founding fathers were very, very smart. We need to recognize that intelligence, recognize that wisdom, and adopt it back. Gary Rathbun, an economy of one. to An Economy of One with Gary Rathbun. Joining me now is Jeffrey A. Tucker. He's the director of content for one of my favorite websites, the Foundation for Economic Education, fee.org, as well as the chief liberty officer and founder of liberty.me. He's a distinguished honorary member of Mises Brazil, research fellow at the Acton Institute and policy advisor of the Heartland Institute. He writes many, many articles. He's got over 150 introduction to books, and uh, I read him almost daily. Jeffrey, welcome back to An Economy of One. Thank you for having me, and thanks for saying that you like uh, the fee.org website. We work very hard on it. It's a lot of fun. It's I, I go there uh, virtually every day. I mean, uh, oh, that's cool. between that's cool. you and, and Daniel Mitchell, doesn't Dan Mitchell, doesn't he do anything but write? I mean, doesn't he I eat lunch or anything? No, no, I, don't, I know what you mean. I feel like I write a lot, but then I look at him and I think, yeah, he makes me feel shabby. You know? <laughs> We've had him on uh, several you know? times, and he's a great guy, but my goodness. Yeah, yeah. I know. And the diversity of topics, and it just over 
flowing with ideas all the time. He's he's exciting to read. I well, agree and and, and uh, I, I'd be remiss if I didn't say you guys are peas in a pod. I mean, you're very diverse in what oh, you write. I, I really enjoy. It's very conversational writing. You have a very nice style that I enjoy. So that being said, I got about uh, three different subjects I'd like to hit you with today. So let's start with, um, you know, the, the name of my radio show is an economy of one. I, 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 I preach and live self-reliance and, and independence every day. I, I uh, fight uh, taking uh, anything from uh, a federal organization or a state organization. You recently wrote an article about uh, the virtue of rejecting charity, and and it, it it reinstated several things that I've said over the years that, you know, we're kind of losing our yeah. shame. You know, it, yeah, it, it yeah, used yeah. to be you, you didn't want to be on food stamps, and and now it's almost a a merit badge to be on on food stamps. Uh, yeah, yeah. And well, this 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 whole thing came came to me because I watched this this Netflix special. Um, you know, from a, a 19th century novel, and you know the family, um, Anne of Green Gables, it was. Mm-hmm. You know, had the opportunity to go on to go on charity to save their farm, and the mother just said, "We don't accept charity." And yeah, it was funny to listen to hear that. It triggered something. I actually <laughs> put the whole, sh- I put the show on pause, and I thought, "Wait a minute, I don't actually remember the last time I've heard anyone say anything like that." You yeah, know? yeah. And so I began to reflect on it. You know, and it's it's like. It's an interesting thing. It's like a matter of character. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's you know, it's a matter of like who are you and what are you made of, and what does your life consist of, and and, and uh, what is your sense of self, and and what does your dignity consist of? Right. Well, you know, there was a time when uh, no self-respecting person, you know, uh, would would accept or really family, you know, would accept mm-hmm. would accept charity. I mean, it was just not considered reputable. And I was digging through some of the literature, and I, I had a vague sense that I remember reading this uh, during the New Deal. Uh, FDR, you know, had a, had a lot of make work programs, a lot of charity programs, but the part of the struggle of the New Deal was that they couldn't find people willing to take them, mm-hmm. actually, because because mm-hmm. most Americans were just like, look, that's not who we are as Americans. Right. So anyway, I wrote this article just to kind of say, hey, you know, maybe we need to revisit this topic, you know, mm-hmm. and call into question uh, whether or not our, our culture and our, our country and our sense of ourselves has changed in light of just the prevalence of welfare and just this welfare state attitude uh, and, and what that does to us, you know, and, mm-hmm. and I, I think we've, we've lost something. Now, of course, you can over-romanticize the past, but I get that. But right. you know, it is really true that that government programs can can wreck your sense of of personal integrity. You know, I think about people that that grew up in um, under under communist systems. You know, where there was uh-huh. no private property, you couldn't save money. Uh, you know, you couldn't really invest. There was a lot of aspects of your life you didn't control. Right. And and it it profoundly affects those cultures. I and mean, you even today you hear people in West Germany. Complain about people in East Germany, yeah. so they say, "Well, they're, they, you know, they're, they're, something happened to them under communism. They never really learned basic virtues of honesty, integrity, keeping your contracts, right. uh, you know, living on your own means, and you know, those those kinds of things." So, anyway, I, I think we should not be shy about talking about some of these old values, 
and 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 maybe even bringing them back, you know. And and uh, so that was the purpose of, of that of that column. Well, you know, I, I, I admire that. I, I, I've 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 spoke uh, about that on air several times. And the example I used, I'm not a parent. I've never had children, but I I observe a lot. And if you look at a I don't know exactly what point, but a two-year-old, a three-year-old, uh, they want to do everything themselves. They, they want to do everything themselves. So I, I, I make the case that it's in our DNA to be self-reliant. And then we spend the next 20, 30 years educating that kid out of self-reliance and, and, and turn him into a, uh, an entitlement mentality. But I believe it's in our DNA to be self-sufficient, to you know, want to do make, it ourselves. You make a very good point, actually, and and people with kids can confirm this. Uh, from the earliest age, the kid, you know, they they have an inflated sense of their own yeah. uh, capacity to do things, and and part of the job of parenting is to is to is to let them have as much autonomy as, as you possibly can, while buffering some of the downsides of that. You know, by always being there, you know, and and that lasts until they're lateral thirty. That's right. But 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 that's but that is exactly it. And and even as parents, you know, you can you can go too far. Yeah. Um. And and providing too much cushion, you know, and and look, there's a lot of folks we're dealing with this now because you know the problem with boomerang kids, you know, they. Mm-hmm. They go off to college and they and they they don't get the job they want. Next thing you know, they're living in the basement playing uh, 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 video games all right. day. Right. So you know, parents have to learn to uh, say, "Hey, listen, you got to get out of the nest," you know, um, uh, so that they can be independent. You know, being you know, being as independent as possible. Right. You know, uh, and and that depends on circumstances, that sort of thing. Is it, it, it's it's a reinforcement of our of our humanity, you know, our our capacity to think for ourselves and act for ourselves. You know, and, and it says something about our personal integrity and the quality of our lives. Right, right. It's funny because I I do think a lot of it rests in parents. Uh, once again, I'm not a parent, but I can. My dad passed away many many years ago, and I, I there's two things that. Well, two of among many things that stuck in my head. And one, growing up, I always remember his voice uh, coming into my head saying, think, will you? Think, you know, make a decision and think. And I remember as a freshman in sophomore in college, I was working at a factory, working my way through college, um, paying my own, and I got laid off. And I said something to my dad about filing for unemployment. And holy moly, did I get a 20-minute lecture about Rathbuns do not file for unemployment. And if you're willing to work, somebody will pay you for that work. You are going to work. And so I've never wow. filed for unemployment, you know. Wow, but, uh, wow. That you know, is really something. Th- those are life lessons, you know. But uh, anyway, speaking of work or maybe not working, uh, I got a big kick out of your uh, – your uh, story about uh, uh, essentially almost being a, a felon and not reporting to traffic court. Apparently, you didn't pay tickets or, <laughs> oh, or something. Listen, so. I, I do this all. The, you know, I'm so bad. I don't know. You know what is wrong with me? I don't know. I know that the time the time is coming up, and I always play these <laughs> games. You know, but but you know, so yeah, I found myself in traffic court yet again. But you know, I learn something every time I go, and I get a good article out of it. But the thing that's, 
know. But the thing that struck me this time is traffic court works now as it did in the 1980s or probably the 70s or probably the 50s. You know, right. there's no difference. Right. Um, but it's so strange how unaffected by technology government is. You know, mm-hmm. just the normal workings of government, the, the irrationality has always been there. But and, 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 and there's always an element of corruption. And basically, they want your money. That's right. what they want. Right. But they have to put you through this rigmarole. I, I got a couple minutes left, uh, Jeffrey. You, you wrote an article uh, about, I mean, it was very timely, uh, of course, in reaction to the, the shooting in uh, Alexandria, uh, Virginia, of uh, uh, one of our Congress uh, people and some assistants and aides and that kind yeah. of stuff. Um, yeah. You know, it, it, I, I was glad to see that there wasn't a lot of people out there talking gun control, although Terry McAuliffe was was talking a little bit about it. But, you know, I, you mirror our our audience insights as far as, you know what, instead of disarming people, we, we probably should arm about everybody, shouldn't we? I, you know, and I, I, I wrote this column. And I'm very uncomfortable with the topic because even though I was raised in a gun family, I'm from Texas. My, my, you know, I inherited all my father's guns, you know, right. uh, um, you know, I've been shooting out of the rifle range, but I don't, I don't actually like them that much. I don't, I don't, I don't want to be that guy who carries, you know, I don't even, mm-hmm. I don't like to keep them around the house, you know? So, but you know, the thing is, and I would say this to any of our kind of, uh, anti-gun listeners out there, you know, if you want to live in a peaceful society where you're safe and secure, you better pray that somebody is out there that with, with, with guns and with good training and their arms to take on the, you know, the, these various, uh, these, these monsters who just, mm-hmm. you know, this guy was, a, he was, he was crazy. I mean, something went wrong with him, right? He was a Bernie Sanders supporter and he had it in his head that he had to go out and kill Republicans, you know, mm-hmm. and he sat up there with, with, a, with a rifle and just started aiming at people. Okay. Uh, you know, that's going to happen. But when it does happen, you need to minimize the amount of bloodshed that these people can call forth. And the only way to deal with that is force. You have to meet force with force. And you can't always depend on the cops. That happened so happened that the Capitol Hill police were there, but they were only there because a member of the House leadership was right. on the on the, the team that was practicing. Otherwise, it would have been a, a total bloodbath. And you know there are there are hundreds of thousands of cases uh, around the, uh, every day in this country, around you know a year around the country of defensive use of guns. And to me, this is the best case for widespread gun ownership. Mm-hmm. I mean, I want to live in a community where where people are armed. You know, I want to when I go to the mall, I want to you know I want to believe that every fifth person that happens to be you know have a have a gun, you know. Right. I, I believe in these in these uh, carry uh, laws that allow people to carry weapons. Well, I think we need that precisely so that we don't face gun violence. Right. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. I mean, there's, there's these very simple-minded people out there that think that like guns are bad, so let's ban them. Well, right. I'm telling you, these people are going to be responsible for some horrific crimes in the future if they get any more of the way. They've already had their way with this gun-free, uh, gun-free school zone stuff. And look what, mm-hmm. look what we face there. They've made the world less safe. Right. And again, I say this not as a, you know, a partisan of, of, of guns as such. I'm just looking at the reality on the ground. 
you know, we have to be able to meet force with force. It's it's like I tell my wife, Jeffrey, we have two uh, very large German shepherds uh, in our house. And I, I told my wife, I said, they're there to cause somebody to pause. And yeah. if if uh, a criminal says, well, I'm going to go shoot up some people. Wait a minute. Maybe I won't because I don't know who's armed and who isn't. Right. That that right. moment of pause can save a lot of lives. So uh, no, I'm I'm with you, and and, and really, as, for me, I want widespread gun ownership, mm-hmm. uh, precisely because I don't want widespread gun use. Right. You know. Right. That's 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 the key, and I, I think we need to it's, it's, we need to get realistic about this and come to terms with it. I've noticed, like you have too, that there there seems to be you know, less anti-gun rhetoric now than there was, say, 10 yeah. years ago. And I yeah. think it's because a lot of people are starting to realize that this is really a matter of life and death. Yeah, absolutely. And, and we saw the good guys are the ones that stop the bad guys. So uh, we, right. we've right. been speaking with Jeffrey A. Tucker from uh, Foundation for Economic Education. I got to tell you, Jeffrey, this is always a real treat for me. I love your writings. I love the work you do. And I know in this article you describe yourself as a free writer, but if we're <laughs> if we're ever together and you need somebody to uh, be armed and, and protect us both, uh, I'll be that guy for you. So I <laughs> love it. Thank uh, you, sir. I look forward to talking with you again. You have a good evening. All the best, dude. Take care. Bye bye. Coming up next, it's Father's Day. We're going to take a quick look. An economy of one with Gary Rathbun. to an economy of one with Gary Rathbun. Well, it's Father's Day. Now, uh, I had a terrific father. I had a terrific childhood. Uh, my father's been gone for a long time now, better than 20 years. But every day I still hear his voice in my head. Uh, one of my dad's favorite sayings was, uh, <laughs> think, will you? From the time I was five years old. Uh, that was probably his most common phrase to me was, think, will you? My dad was a big advocate for individualism, for self-reliance, for doing it yourself. Didn't always appreciate that at the time, but today uh, I'm very self-confident. I'm very self-reliant. Um, something breaks down in my house, I know I can fix it. My car breaks down, I know I can fix it. Uh, something on my property uh, I know I can fix it. I can run anything. I know what tools are for. Um, I am um, very confident in my skills. The downside to that is my wife is very confident in my skills, and she never calls a repair person. She always waits for me to come home uh, to fix things. But uh, Father's Day, uh, you know, it surprised me doing a little research on this. Uh, for a long time, Uh, Different cities, different communities celebrated uh, Father's Day. But it really wasn't until 1966 that Lyndon Johnson, President Johnson, through an executive order, designated the third Sunday in June as the official day to celebrate Father's Day. And it wasn't until 1972 under the Nixon administration that Father's Day was officially recognized as a national holiday. 
It was 1924 when President Coolidge recommended Father's Day, but it wasn't until 66, it was the third Sunday in June in 72, that it was a national holiday. So it took three presidents about 50 years to create Father's Day. Now, in this day and age, it's very common, uh, very acceptable for movies, for sitcoms, for commercials to make fun of the stupid father in the family. He's just a kind of a doofus bumbling along, um, and mom is always the smart one, or the kids are always the smart one. But the fact is, it's fathers, it's both parents, I understand that, but it's fathers who traditionally have done what needed to be done to support the family. And... Moms do what need to be done, needs to be done to support the family. It takes two. I'm a firm believer in two-parent families. I'm not going to get into the discussion about same-sex parents, none of that. I don't care. Um, I I just think it takes two. Now, I'm not a father, and uh, I've never had children, obviously. And so I don't know quite what that perspective means from a father's perspective standpoint or a parent's standpoint but i do know that what was what is depicted in movies what is depicted in sitcoms what is depicted in commercials is not what i grew up with and if i was a father it would not depict me as a father and we're all good natured and we kind of chuckle and and laugh at the doofus but The fact is, uh, all of us have a father, at least most of us, and (laughs) I I don't like that attitude. We are what we are because of our parents. We are what we are because of our teachers. I was fortunate that uh, when I left for school every morning, my mom and dad were there. When I came home, my mom and dad were there. My dad ran his companies from home. He had an office in our home, and that's how he did things. But uh, taught us self-reliance. My brother and I can do anything that we need to do to fix things or take care of our, uh, ourselves and our family. So uh, think of that. Think of what your father means on Father's Day and reflect. If you're a father, reflect from that angle. I'm not, but I had one of the greatest dads in the world. I want you to have a great day. Be an individual, be self-reliant, be an economy of one. I'm Gary Rathman. We'll see you next time. The views expressed on this program do not necessarily reflect the views of this station. Listeners should consult their own financial advisors or conduct their own due diligence before making any financial decisions. Private Wealth Consultants is an SEC-registered investment advisor. (laughs) 